0: Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com.
2: BlueNile.com.
3: This podcast is a Royfield brown production. Find others on iTunes.
1: All right. Yeah, I know.
3: It's the story of a cultural superpower that danced and sprinted its way to success. It brought the world Reggae, Colin Powell, Rastus, Hip-Hop, Bob Marley, and much more. Its story is told to you in full colour for your podcasting ears. It's the story of how Jamaica conquered the world. Search for it on iTunes. How Jamaica conquered the world. It's probably the best, least known podcast in podcast, Search for it today.
4: (laughs) Anlass Deutsche Volk.
2: 1914,
0: June, Sarajevo, the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, assassinated, killed by a Serbian nationalist. About six weeks later, World War breaks out. Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, France, Britain, everyone is drawn into it starting in August, and then... Will America be drawn in? Listen to the first show exclusively on Mixcloud today and subscribe to us on iTunes beginning January the 18th. From Washington to Obama, 10 American Presidents. The new podcast from
2: Royfield Brown.
0: This is a Manhattan bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand
5: Street.
0: Mind
2: the gap. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm Barbara
5: and I'm John and this week we're talking about how transport makes the city.
1: Sometimes you're in a long stretch of traffic you get to the front and you realise that there has been a small accident where both cars could have gone to the side of the road but they're both angry at each other and are kind of causing this like miles long stretch of traffic.
4: Someone dusted off an old plan and it was decided on that we're going to build this with the political narrative to rebalance the economy, which is a fair objective to meet.
3: So what sucks about Leeds are local and national politicians don't seem to be willing to just grab opportunities by the uh, cojones.
5: So regular readers, uh, if they've ever bothered to, to check this stuff, will notice we, in theory, have five sections on the website, one of which is transport. But I think it's probably fair to say that transport isn't just Fifth of our coverage, that actually it's probably more like I don't know half. Yeah, half is probably about seventy percent. Right. Yeah, I mean on a, on a good day it's all of it. Um, but I think there's there's two reasons for that. One is that you know people, our people, you people are really into this stuff. Let's not let's not let's not lie to ourselves here.
2: Well, yeah, if we look at the stuff people actually read, yeah. <laughs> again the percentage is very
5: high. Yeah, we're shameless capitalists like that. Um, but the other thing is, I think transport networks are actually quite fundamental to to how cities function. Like, it's kind of easy to imagine that, you know, a city is the, the sort of the built-up area. But actually, in practice, they can kind of be bigger than that because a commuting zone is a better functional definition for a city. And, you know, a whole lot of cities have kind of grown out as their transport map has grown.
2: My thought, as you were saying, was that was also that it can be smaller than that because, to me, maybe because I'm kind of young and broke in London, the difference between a inner-city commuting well, not even a commuting zone just a transport zone and then I mean if you looked at London from above you might start seeing bits of the home counties kind of lit up as well but for that that's kind of a vastly different price range um, and I think the kind of the virtue of cities is actually that you can travel for an hour for one pound forty, and you're still within the city but actually you're travelling much further than you'd ever bother to do if you lived in some provincial town um, you wouldn't do that every day just to see your friend whereas cities allow you to do that
5: but I guess what I'm getting at really is like I grew up in in sort of an outer suburb of London, and it took you know, better part of an hour to get into town. Other people live in commuter towns, you know, much further out, but it still takes about an hour to get into town. And you know, functionally, in terms of how you relate to the city, is there really any difference between those two positions?
2: Yeah, no, not really. And especially since, I mean, it depends what city you're in. Some cities are more driver friendly, but given that in London it's it's completely pointless, really. Driving so you are really your geography is basically dictated by what transport is doing. Anything in our heads, we see different parts of the city. This probably goes for quite a lot of places. In fact, maybe New York is another example, um, where the areas of the city you consider being accessible, uh, that is totally related to the transport links. it has got very little to do with the actual distances involved.
0: Mm.
5: So, so there's the old joke about you know cabs not wanting to go south of the river, and I think like one of the reasons uh, South London is until very recently still seen this like this kind of weird remote inaccessible places because the tube doesn't go down there very much yeah and, and it's just it's less it's forms of transport everyone's less familiar with so buses and the overground rail where well, the map is just not as familiar
2: yeah and i mean i suppose a lot of that just had to do with the fact the ground was very marshy which meant that those kind of very deep underground lines took a lot weren't as straightforward to do
5: Oh, good good geological fact there. I know. That's... Well,
2: this is all based on the fact that someone once told me that Southwark Station is basically floating, that a lot of those Jubilee Line stations use quite complex engineering to be able to kind of move with the the kind of soil levels because the whole thing is just a complete mush that, um, that
5: is awesome you actually just, <laughs> you, you just taught me something about the tube i didn't know that's, yeah that's amazing
2: we should probably fact check it afterwards but i'm sure really, yeah. i think it is true and that's and that's why it took such a long time and that's why those stations look quite futuristic because in fact they're very complicated
5: you you mentioned uh, new york one of the things i quite like about the sort of map of new york is or quite like it's the wrong phrase but one of the things that strikes me about it is like the subway network just stops at the city boundary. So if you look at the northern Bronx, like the lines just kind of uh, stop at the very, uh, the very northern end of, of New York City itself. Even though the built-up area continues into what's the county Westchester County, I think it's called. The city itself is is defined by the subway, and the subway is defined by the city.
2: But what's interesting though, as well, is cities where the transport link comes kind of later. So Beijing, for example, where the the subway grew or the metro grew up very quickly but kind of after the city had already established its limits i wonder if that changes the way that places develop i don't know it probably is a two-way street
5: yeah no i I think that you're right there are are two different models because um, certainly london and i think a lot of the the other sort of cities of of that sort of age kind of grew with their with their metro maps. so like london Mm. a lot of the outer tube lines were built as a It was a real estate business, really. You kind of build a tube line so that you could sell the houses that you built next to the tube line. But that's totally different from the model in a lot of big Asian cities where they're kind of trying to impose a metro network on on something that's already there. The point I was kind of getting at at the start of this was that, you know, there there is no standard definition of a city it's incredibly difficult to come up with standardised population figures so that you can directly compare. I don't know Vienna and Baghdad or something, mm-hmm. because how do you decide where the city stops? And one of the only, uh, one of the most common uh, definitions that people do use is is commuting patterns. Because if you know seventy five percent of the population of an area commute into the city to work, then functionally they are residents of the city, even if they're kind of living ten, fifteen, twenty miles away. So, to an extent, our transport networks do exactly define what a city is.
2: Yeah, and they allow for that strange effect whereby you have kind of the centres of cities like London and New York, which during the day have massive populations at their centre, and then at night have this kind of donut effect of where the population kind of all goes back again to these faraway places, and that is only allowed for by mm-hmm. these networks in the first place.
5: But this is, I mean, this is kind of a twentieth-century thing. Like, yeah, one, once upon the time cities were could only get so big because you literally couldn't get to the other side of them on, on foot if they're any bigger so it's really only sort of transport uh, the metros and so on that kind of enabled this sort of ballooning of, of cities into the kind of urban sprawl we know today
2: Yeah, and also I think there's a strange effect whereby people um, who live in the centre of London this is now a very like uh, expensive and desirable thing to do Whereas in the past, I think living right kind of in what would be the center now imagine the center of um, international cities wasn't kind of so exciting and great no, I, I,
5: there, no this is, this is definitely a, a, a very recognizable trend. there's kind of an inflection point in the '90s mm. where suddenly um, you know, city centers which have been hollowed out of population for decades suddenly become fashionable places to live again i wrote a slightly saki piece blaming it on friends <laughs> um but but yeah no I, I genuinely think there is there is a cultural moment in in the early 90s where suddenly living downtown becomes aspirational again and things like friends and seinfeld and sex and the city mm. and so on are actually a part of that um but i think probably the the main reason is just that heavy manufacturing stopped being the main way cities made money and people don't want to live next to factories but living next to
2: but, yeah, it's
5: it's, you, you, you're not going to choke on, on the stuff coming out of Goldman Sachs.
2: <laughs> well, maybe abstractly. But <laughs> in, 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 <laughs> yeah, basically. in metaphorical terms, yeah. perhaps.
5: So, a lot of cities now are growing it's spontaneously. They're not growing in the sort of. I mean, the, 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 the cities built around metro networks weren't planned exactly, but there was like, you know, people put. People built them at rail links, and then the houses, and then people move into those houses. What's happening now in much of the developing world is that cities are growing because people move to them and build their own houses, and it's often quite difficult for the transport network to keep up. So, what does that look like?
1: My name is Emmanuel Acinoto. I'm a journalist, um, freelancing at the moment at the Guardian. Um, uh, right on Nigeria. You wrote
5: a, a fascinating piece for us about um, the yellow bus network, which is yeah. kind of just sort a of
1: semi-formal right. network.
5: Do you want to tell us about that a little
1: bit? It's it's one of those things that really epitomises the way the city works. So you get on these networks. There isn't a map. There isn't. You can't go online and <laughs> and Google how to get from one place to another. But when you go to your local bus stop. Um, you know there are you you know it's a bus stop because basically people are standing around in one place and <laughs> and that's the, the kind of key indication and the buses they kind of stop by each stop and they usually have in every bus there's usually a bus driver and a conductor the conductor is usually this young person who stands outside the side of the the bus and kind of shouts the destinations at, at people um trying to get them to come in um and he also kind of takes care of the money inside the bus and to get on the bus can be difficult because Lagos buses are characteristically impatient so they they won't really stop for you to get in they'll just kind of slow a bit and the second you've got like one leg on they're like back up to 50 miles an hour away to the next bus stop trains are scarce and a lot of the train lines really a train maybe comes like a few times a day not very well connected so Transport is solely reliant on roads, which are always packed, which have enough problems. So it just makes the bus network a complete kind of, sometimes a bit of a basket case.
5: I have always lived in London, basically, mm. but I think London is fairly typical of major cities mm. in that people get so used to certain transport links being there that, you know, if the central line or, or the A train or whatever mm. it is goes down, then mm. they, they, you know, they get yeah. very angry because yeah. they can't get to work. Yeah. But that's because they're so sort of used to knowing they are 45 minutes from their destination. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't sound like there's that level of predictability. I mean, how do you yeah. commute in a city like Lagos yeah. when you have no idea how long it's going to
1: take you every yeah. day? So broadly, you're able to kind of make predictions. But the problem really is anything can happen at any time. And that's the frustration. You know, sometimes a journey, I remember a journey that was that should have taken me about two hours. I ended up being three hours late you know and you you get three hours late three hours late so so it's five hours it took me five hours (laughs) to to make a two-hour journey and and sometimes you're in a long stretch of traffic and you think oh it's just kind of classic Lagos congestion it's a terrible morning you get to the front and you realize that there's like been a small accident where both cars could have gone to the side of the road but they're both kind of angry at each other and are kind of causing this, like, miles-long stretch of traffic. And you get these kind of menial, uh, motley little problems that can be so disruptive on the road, largely because of the way that the system on the road is. It's so poorly managed and it's so kind of a law unto itself that it really needs a kind of, in some sense, a culture change, but also it needs better administration. Uh, one of the things that causes a lot of traffic is just poor roads. Uh, you can go down a road and maybe it should theoretically take you like five minutes to drive down and it could take you five times that long because potholes on the road basically make you make it so that you can't drive more than a few miles per hour in practice. Um, and it's, it's these kind of things that make transport so difficult, unnecessarily difficult in Nigeria. It sounds like there's kind of two
5: layers of, of
1: difficulty here there's this, mm. sort of the,
5: the the absence of infrastructure, the mm. fact that everyone is dependent on on these roads because mm. there's not a metro system or mm. something, mm. but also there's uh, an absence of kind of almost sort of institutional or cultural mm. infrastructure, so like you get these two guys arguing on the road because mm. there is no system mm. in place whether it's a cultural norms or, or, or mm or like local traffic wardens or something, you can actually come out and disrupt that and so sort of get it moving again.
1: Where Lagos have actually tried to help is they've, uh, many years ago, had this system called LASMA. This is this road um, network system where these kind of officials are policing the road um, actively. And they have a good reputation of being quite stern guys that you, you don't really want to cross. They're mm. quite uh, strict and, you know, they can you can be fined for making misdemeanors on the road. But naturally there's so many cars to very few men and women on the road that, you know, a lot of things happen beyond their kind of jurisdiction. But largely what they do try to do is make the system work better than it does and they have a good impact. I think the real problem is that they're not enough. One of the ways the new governors try to kind of toughen up road laws is they've created these things called mobile courts, essentially They'll if a if you for example drive down a one-way street on the opposite way, which actually happened to me. I was in a car and my driver, the taxi driver, went down the opposite way on a one-way street, and you know he kind of realised. Was like, ah, sod it, <laughs> <of. laughs> and and it went down, and a and last minute official stopped him, and we stopped by the side of the car, and they had to. He essentially had to pay a, a fine for it, and but you know he was in a sense fortunate because should that happen since this year what they would do is they'd take him immediately to this court which would give him a much heftier fine on the spot and the consequences for not paying it could in some cases lead to jail time so they've really kind of beefed up the road Mm -hmm. laws but these mobile courts that they have there are only five of them in a city of about plus 21 million people. 21 million, is can't you know, imagine. So it's like, whilst the policy seems okay in terms of trying to, you know, it it's in practice, it's not really that effective. Mm-hmm. The best, really, the best way to make Lagos Transport work better, smoother and quicker is just to make, firstly, to improve road quality. But I think also the way the infrastructure works is not great. There are so many buses that are going down very small residential streets, largely because connectivity in these streets is so bad. And I think, and that in turn makes roads that are really not really built for heavy traffic to go down them, it makes them get worse and worse. And I think what the, they need to do is they need to improve connectivity in and around the city so big buses don't have to go down small streets. And also so that there isn't as heavy a reliant on road transport. People can take a train, for example. But that... At the moment, it seems like a bit of a pipe dream in So
5: there's no sort of plan for like a a, a huge Lagos metro network? There is. there's,
1: There's been this, it's been this kind of recurring thing since like the early 90s. You know, they talk about it a lot about the Lagos train networks and they've, they are saying now that it will be ready very soon, in the next few years. Um, there is a train network, but it's so scarce that it's pointless to, to go on, and people don't trust it, and people know that they don't really come. And that's why quite often on train links, there are markets. And in the rare occasion that a train <laughs> Actually comes... Actually on the rails. On the rails. <laughs> so in the rare occasion that a train comes along, you, know, you can move your goods to the side and come back and know that, as I said, maybe a day before one turns up again. And the problems that come from the overpopulation is very difficult for any single government to get a grip over. you know. And that's been the major challenge. I mean, Lagos was about 1.4 million people in the early 70s. It's now over 20, at least, it says officially 21, but it could be anything up to 25. It's one of the fastest growing cities in the world. Housing, for example, is another problem where even though the, the government have tried made tentative steps towards building more houses the problems of overpopulation just means all those steps just get dwarfed more and more each year and uh, even with now trying to improve road transport it's still an issue because road development and transport development is a lot slower than population growth i think what they would what they should do from a public policy perspective is they need to kind of really get a handle on uh, road infrastructure really invest a lot in it, in the administering of it. A big problem in previous governments had been corruption in building roads. A road would be, it would uh, the, the government would already, you know, have it set that they would um, have a road that was ready for redevelopment. And quite often a road would start being built, and then when it's like three quarters of the way, you just kind of see the construction workers have disappeared. And that happens a lot, that happened a lot and it was a kind of corruption scheme. The money ran out. Yeah, Yeah, it wasn't so much the money ran out as in it wasn't there, it was that the people who were supposed to use the money for the roads kind of disappeared. Mm -hmm. So it was like a lot of roads were being commissioned to be rebuilt but the commissioning was what was happening not the administering of those construction sites and that was a massive problem. The current governors tried to tackle that in the sense of really essentially going around in his car and checking on the sites personally um, and t- having a tighter grip on that. And it works in some places, in a lot of places on the mainland that have been waiting on roads to be built. Has, the last time I went in, the last a few weeks ago, you could see that those roads had made a lot of progress since he's been, ba- been there. Um, so there is steady progress, but again, in a city with that many people, uh, the progress only really it needs a better system of governments that these institutions, government institutions can have a greater trust in the way these things work. But usually it relies on a kind of strong man individual coming in and beefing everyone into, into action.
2: So Emmanuel suggested that big, kind of fancy road projects could be one solution for this kind of sort of formlessness of the transport network. Do you think that would work?
5: I mean, I'm cynical for a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, cars are kind of on their way out. Like, it's just, yeah, they're they're just rubbish, really, aren't they? I mean, just build some trains, trains away are way cooler. A lot uh, more people
2: in the train. Yeah, uh,
5: they are a more efficient use of space, uh, and you know, also people like the maps, but mostly the more efficient use of, of space and energy and so on. But the other thing is actually, like, it just felt a bit in one bound they were free to say all they need to do is sort of invest a lot more in the roads.
2: And I guess the other problem is, in you need to think about the environment in which you're operating, that even the kind of, the sort of most powerful government's Struggle with these projects all the time.
5: Yeah, yeah. For, there are very good reasons why why big projects on that scale don't quite come off. Next station is
0: Hu Xingman. Hu is a transfer station. Passengers for Line 2, please prepare to get off.
4: Hello, my name's Nicole Badstever. I'm a researcher at the London School of Economics, and I'm also a doctoral student at University College London. My research is looking at transport and cities and how they're governed.
5: Okay, so there is this this thing called the mega project, which these are the multi-billion-pound uh, engineering schemes, uh, public or, or or road transport. Um and, and other than the expense, the thing that seems to sort of bind them together as a group is this sort of assumption that we just build this one thing and all our problems will be solved and we'll live happily ever after. And that doesn't actually tend to happen. Like the mega project as a category, tends to be known for everything costing far more than you expect, and it taking far longer to build. And you know, but what, why why do these things go wrong? Why are there so few examples of of these mega projects that kind of stay on on time and on budget?
4: So the mega project inherently is very risky. The long period over which it's planned and then implemented makes it very prone to sort of be knocked out of the path it's supposed to be going down it also means any event that you may not think actually affects it does so for instance if a different part of railway in the country falls down or a highway collapses suddenly all the um, safety factors increase or suddenly the perception of the project changes and we have to you know do a lot of um, contingency measures to mitigate that perceived concern. Also politicians can influence it a lot so one of the big things is that once you start changing a lot of the plans at the implementation phase that really pushes up the cost of projects because what was planned for and costed for is now completely different to the scope that is being demanded and contractors can push up the price. The The plans that were made are no longer valid so um, interruptions basically because of the period over which it's being built is so long interruptions along the way can um, really influence it and because a mega project is so large and it's built over such a long time it's really prone to that happening. Also there is a lot of optimism bias especially when it is being planned so even though places like the UK have a green book which is a a book a guidance on how to cost projects and how to try and reduce the optimism bias it still always happens that people planning these projects are very optimistic about what may be achieved what objectives can be realized Um, so for transport projects in particular how many people are going to use the system immediately.
5: So is the point that because it's such a long time horizon and such a big project that any modeling you do is going to be built on a whole series of nested assumptions and by making slightly different assumptions you can come up with radically different end numbers so basically you can kind of not not fiddle the figures exactly but like you can you can get the result you want to a certain extent i mean is there a problem that if you've been so if you've spent a couple of years in your life working on the planning phase of a project like this, you don't want the answer to be, no, we shouldn't build this thing, because then you've just wasted the last three years of your life.
4: Yes, and um, I guess um, a good example of that would be HS2, where the decision has been made to build that. And... And
5: so HS2 for, for overseas. Sorry, high speed sp- 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 two. <laughs> the, the proposed uh, high speed railing from London to the north of England. Um, so
4: the anecdote around it is that someone dusted off an old plan at the DFT and it was decided on that we're going to build this um, with the political narrative to rebalance the economy, which is a, a fair um, objective to meet. But then a series of trying to justify that within the procedures and processes we have in place to justify or to um, make a case for it was used um after the decision was made that this is the project to go for. So uh, rather than it being, look, here is a problem, how can we address the problem? How can we look at um, finding different solutions that may meet that um, identified problem? The solution is decided and then the sort of problem retrospectively.
5: So everything is back to front. So back put, to front. You've got solutions in search of a problem rather than the other way around. Aren't there any examples of good mega-projects that haven't gone horribly, horribly wrong, and what, what's different about them?
4: So one that's often used at the moment is that Crosswell is going quite well. So what is said that is working quite well is that a lot of the planning was done at the planning stage, the route hasn't been changed, and that there was enough technical expertise In the whole mechanism building Crossrail to ensure that um, it is working well um, by comparison to projects that, you know, are going tenfold over budget or two, threefold over budget. Um, Crossrail
5: being a, a, a new underground railway across London. I grew up on one of the stations that will be served by... not I grew up on the station. That would be ridiculous. I grew up near <laughs> one of the stations. It, uh, <laughs> if it, there speaks a transport researcher. Uh, I grew up in one of the areas in the outer East London that will be served by Crossrail. And I remember in my childhood there being leaflets at the local station announcing that Crossrail was being proposed. Yeah. Uh, um, now, firstly, the route suggested then was not the route we're getting now. And secondly, I'm really getting on a bit. So this is going back some time. Um, I mean, like it feels to me like there was this sort of 20-year period where Crossrail sort of went back and forth without being signed off in which there was probably quite a lot of public money spent on on, on proposing the thing before they actually signed it off in the early 21st century. So I, 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 I don't know, I'm speculating. I just wonder whether it's kind of be easy to, to look at project and say oh this hasn't been too bad if you don't start counting until quite late on Uh.
4: the journey that there has been to get to this point where we may have crossrail or a line from east to west is has been a long one and obviously there have been some route changes but I think in comparison to other projects once the decision was actually finally made to build it um, it seemed the project Managers seem to have learnt from some of the mistakes done elsewhere in mega projects. To uh, go back to why it's taken so long, I um, that is based on the political cycles and the election cycles, which mean that politicians um, have their eyes on projects that can be realised within their their term, um, and mega projects can't. So the person cutting the ribbon won't be you; it will be someone 20 years down the line
5: and human nature being what it is, it's probably quite easy then to think, well, there are other good reasons not to not to spend this several billion pounds or dollars yeah. or whatever it may be. How big a problem is technical expertise? Because presumably, most people who work on one of these projects are not going to have worked on another one. Is there just a problem that people don't know how to run these things?
4: That is a, a problem that is often highlighted as one of the reasons that the Jubilee Line extension, which went from uh, central London to the new financial district in Canary Wharf, was um, such a large cost overrun because that was the first project um, within decades that there just wasn't the knowledge and the management skill to deal with such a big project um, and to manage all of the contractors that were involved in that project. Um, a mega project. By design is very complex and um, you need a good management structure in place to make sure there is the right communication when problems crop up and that wasn't in place and the te- technical expertise to deal with those problems once they cropped out was also not in place. So yes, you are right, that is a, a major problem. So People advocate for having a more continuous stream of me- mega projects, um, and I guess is one of the arguments for now starting to look at Crossrail 2 um, is that that expertise can be captured and reused to make sure the next project is also a success.
5: Are mega projects just bad? Should we stop trying to do these things because the human race is just not capable of of spending? 10 billion dollars without accidentally spending 30 billion dollars should we just focus on smaller projects
4: academics at oxford university um and his colleagues argue that we should try and break down maybe the project into smaller chunks which are more manageable that you could maybe break down the mega project into smaller components um which are more accessible and more easily realizable
5: but how do you build a Crossrail or an HS2 or an RER or an Eastside Access project? How do you build those like a, a, a bit at a time?
4: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the challenge.
5: The conversation actually continued after that, and Nicole explained various ways in which you can uh, address some of these problems. You can break these projects into pieces and do a bit of a, a, a long-distance railway line at a time, or how you do that for a big tunnel, I don't know. Or, or you, you can set up some kind of um, national commission that kind of takes the big infrastructure projects out of the political process. But I just don't see how you can ever completely depoliticise
0: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
5: Um, projects that are going to cost billions in taxpayer money. I just see it happening.
2: Now we're moving on to the portion of the show where someone tells us about their city, and this week we're looking north.
3: Hi, I'm Tim Oliver. I'm a university lecturer, and I live in Leeds, and I want to tell you what's great and what sucks about Leeds. What's great about Leeds is that the people who live here have managed to make it a pretty darn good place. So there's loads of different places to go and eat, to go and drink, lots of different stuff to go and do lots of creative dynamic people doing creative dynamic things but this links to what sucks about Leeds what sucks about Leeds is that compared to particularly one of the major northern city Manchester our local and national politicians don't seem to be willing to just grab opportunities by the uh, cojones and take them forwards I think there's a degree of envy of Manchester if you look at what Manchester Council under Richard Lees has done for Manchester. If you look at things like the Metrolink, if you look at the um, uh, city deal that Manchester got. There's just a feeling that Manchester's generally got a council that's willing to go out and do stuff. Whereas Leeds City Council is stuck in petty squabbles with its neighbours about who gets to be in what club when it comes to local government deals. So in many ways, what's great about Leeds is often in spite of what sucks about Leeds. And it would be nice if what sucked about Leeds sorted itself out so we can make what's great about Leeds even greater.
0: This is a Manhattan bound skip stop train. The next stop is Sheepshead
1: Bay.
2: We're on the hunt for more people to tell us their favourite and less favourite things about their city. So if you would like to appear, uh, just get in touch with us by Twitter or by email, um, and we'd love to have you on.
5: To wrap up, we are going to talk about our map of the week. Um, And this week, I'm going to say as regular readers will know again, sorry, but as regular readers will know, we do also publish quite a lot of amateur takes on on famous metro maps, particularly London's tube map. Uh, which is kind of a uh, you know if you're if you're a designer wanting to show off your skills, showing your your take on on London's tube map seems to be one of the one of the avenues to do that. The reason I mention all this is that one of the guys who came to us with his own take on the tube map has actually uh, succeeded in in making one of his amateur maps official. A Serbian guy called uh, I'm going to really mispronounce his name here Jug Serovic, produced uh, an amateur bus map of Luxembourg City. And it's now been adopted by, by the city government. It's the official version. I mean, Jug is actually a professional designer. He's not just some some random map maker. But you know, I think it, I think it gives hope to all those people out there that sort of tinkering In their with bedrooms. their own. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I think so. And also, it just I suppose people like maps because they're a bit like puzzles, especially where so on the Luxembourg map there were just tons and tons of lines, just all kind of running alongside each other, and it just made you feel a bit kind of sick to look at. And he just kind of gradually detangled them. Mm. um which and he did so so effectively that they were like yes <laughs> this is better than what we could do ourselves
5: yeah um one of one of the challenges i think that a lot of uh bus maps have is there's actually only a, a, a relatively small number of colors you can use in the map that the eye can can identify by sight like you can have maybe two different shades of blue mm. And you can see which is the dark and which is the light one, but if you have like four shades of blue then suddenly you don't know which is which and you know bus networks tend to be more than than a dozen lines so
2: yeah I think for the for the truly gifted amateur map maker bus maps are kind of the big challenge really because in London they sort of get around this by putting area specific maps up in bus stops which but if you were trying to look at a map of a whole mass bus map of London you'd be <laughs> yeah confused
5: I mean there are literally hundreds of, of different bus routes run by the London Transport Authorities and I think that's probably about, I think, about standard for, for major cities. But, you know, I still come back to my, my my point which is if you really want to sort of make it as a map maker, what you need to do is invent your own colour.
0: <laughs> 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 You've been
5: listening to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Barbara Speed and produced by Royful Brown. Our theme music is Dust from the Stars by Charlie Charles. You also heard The Weather by Destinazione Altrove and Embryonic Waves composed by Matthew Reitzel. All music in the show is licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast and on iTunes, where you'll also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter and on Facebook, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. And if you wanted to leave a review to tell your friends how lovely we are, well, we'd very much appreciate that. Thanks for listening.
0: This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. 지하 서울역입니다. 내리실 오른쪽입니다.